Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I wanted to do one more thing with the end of Corinthians, and that's the uh, final section, the Corinthians ethical consideration. I just wanted to go back and look. The Corinthians were a church riddled with ethical problems, and, and it's interesting that on no occasion does Paul provide them with any ethical code beyond that of love. And he does that again here in the concluding section. And certainly he says a man should not live with his father's wife. He tells those who are visiting prostitutes that your body is the temple of God. He tells those that are being greedy at the the Lord's Supper that uh, you need to take care of one another. But everything that he says is couched in the admonition of love. And that's true here at the end. Look at chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let me give you the message translation of this. Keep your eyes open. Hold tight to your convictions. Give it all you've got. Be resolute and love without stopping. We live in a time in which ethics has been separated out from the Christian story so that people do not hesitate to embrace the ethic of the culture rather than the ethic of love. Keeping the foreigners at bay, putting children in cages, making America great again at the expense of Christian ethics. And the question arises as to the ground of ethics, and especially Christian ethics. Is our ethics grounded in love, and what does that mean exactly? Is ethics a kind of secondary realm to salvation? Isn't the most important thing that you believe in Christ and accept him in your heart and you get saved? Aren't ethics something of a footnote to the more important part of the gospel message? And don't all people in some way share the same basic ethical understanding? Is there really that big of a difference? And the presumption being that Christian ethics can be translated into the secular idiom and vice versa. And you can leave out the theological content, its thought in this understanding, without fear of losing any of the essential elements of a Christian ethic. And what I want to argue is that our Christianity holds together, or it does not hold together, our ethics with our doctrine, our theology with practice, our church life with the rest of our life. It only holds together if we understand ourselves as part of a a whole, a narrative, in which all of these elements are blended together. Let me state it like this, that the intellectual act of acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the ethical act of following him are not two separate things. These are one integrated movement which come together or should come together as we do life together in our fellowship. Stanley Harris has put it this way that the first social ethical task of the church is to be the church, the servant community. 
Now such a claim may well sound self-serving until we remember that what makes the church the church is faithful manifestation of the peaceable kingdom in the world. As such, the church does not have a social ethic. The church is a social ethic. Our task is not really to make the world better. That's not our first task. Our first task is to help Christian people form a community consistent with their convictions. And where the church is not understood to be the community of salvation, and where salvation is separated out from ethics, or where salvation is just depicted as otherworldly, then the notion that being a Christian entails an ethic will be lost. And what it means to tie ethics to our life and our life together is to say that the primary shaping force in our life is this community, this people, this way of life, the Christian koinonia. The church stands as an alternative to other things that might organize our lives, that might give us our ethical principles. And of course, whatever that is, whatever we imagine organizes our life, that is going to contain the goal, and this goal is going to entail an ethic. So if your primary goal is to be a good citizen of the United States, of the nation state, this is going to shape your ethic. If your primary goal is being a part of a particular family or a particular region, that's going to shape your ethic. If your primary goal is to make America great again, that will shape your ethical goal. And this will mean that whatever it takes to accomplish this, you know, whether it means dying or killing or simply allowing our lives to be shaped, that will be part of it. And so being part of the koinonia means that the ethic of love does not stop. You know, when we talk about being shaped by a community, the strange thing about the koinonia of the church is that it is not restricted to a particular group of people, a, a particular nation state, a particular ethnic identity. Uh, it does not stop at the walls or the borders of our people, our family, our tribe. And this is why being a follower of Christ can entail a kind of universal ethic. And so the whole idea, the idea of studying Christian ethics, it's kind of a modern invention. At one time, there were no Christian ethics, which may sound strange. That does not mean that Christians did not think about how they should live their lives. In fact, that's all they thought about. Christian theologians, that, that was the whole point, but that understanding was very much integrated with doctrine and theology and the life of the church. And so the early Christians saw themselves as embodying a particular, peculiar kind of people, a peculiar kind of political and social and cultural way of life. In this, the early church was very similar to Israel. And that is that the religion, to, uh, you know, can you think of a Jew that would psychologize or etherealize their religious faith to just make it an internal thing? Oh, you know, we just do that in our head. Well, the Jews and the Christians are similar in this. They're like one another. In other words, Christianity is on a continuum. Now, I don't mean to say that Christianity or that Judaism does not apply to the deep 
psychological aspect of who we are, but the way you transform that, the way you shape people's character is holistic. Just take a, an example, the, the Ten Commandments. Can you take those Ten Commandments, remove them from the context of the Old Testament, and will they still make sense? Or in fact, do we need to have them in the story of these people, this deliverance? I mean, think of just the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before you. Well, the only way that would make sense if that God, the story of God delivering them out of Egypt, delivering them through the Red Sea, they know who that God is. And you can go through all 10 of the commands. This only makes sense where the Torah, the law, is grounded. And in fact, the word Torah just means it's pointing to the way that we're going to continue to walk in this way. They've already begun walking. The story has already begun. So the Torah, the law, is the way and the, what it would mean to sin would be to stray from the way. It would be to not identify yourself as part of this, these people. That's why, you know, when we talk about law and works in the New Testament, what it's talking about is identity with a particular people. And the story of Israel, I think, continues in the church. That is, that it, the form and substance of a community, of this community, is dependent upon the narrative, is dependent upon the story, is dependent upon the unfolding of this understanding, and our ethic then is to be found as part of that social ethics. It's a correlative and, and part of the content of the narrative of the peculiar people that we are. And so ethics is not simply concerned with a specific act, doing this or doing that, but it's concerned primarily with what sort of persons we are. Should I or should I not have an abortion? It's not just a question about an act, but about what kind of person I'm going to be. And to forget the, you know, the very description of an act, abortion, reflects a moral tradition with certain presuppositions. And we understand that in this community, life is a gift from God. And that children are important in our continuing this journey. So that we don't act on the basis or we don't decide things in a kind of isolation from the, the holistic picture. And so the church is where we become a particular I like the word peculiar because most of you are peculiar people, I have to say. And we should be, right? That we enact a specific story which will shape our character and our life. We are a people of peace. We are a people of nonviolence. We are a people of truth, not falsehood. And this is the main thing about us, or it should be. If we attempt to arrive at an ethic apart from this peculiarity, apart from being a, a part of this unique group of people, apart from this community of love, it's very predictable what would happen. In other words, let's say, how do you decide an ethic just on the basis of reason? Let's take an example. What is peace outside of the church? Well, you can go back to Aristotle and he defines peace as the absence of war, the absence of conflict. And so peace 
is a kind of negative achievement. And the picture is that there is always these chaotic forces at work. A kind of chaos kept at bay is the, the achievement then, so that one achieves peace, not because there is an original peace to be found in God, which is what we believe, but because we only achieve peace through a kind of negation of a negation. Through violence, perhaps, through mutually assured destruction of our enemies, maybe for a period we can achieve peace. But I believe in heaven and among a heavenly people, virtue is not simply that we dominate the situation and that our guns are bigger than their guns, but salvation from sin must mean salvation from that whole notion of a political, economic, psychic kind of continual conflict in which forces are pictured as always in conflict. And so we do not simply picture an imaginary of keeping an imaginary chaos at bay. What came prior to violence and war and conflict is the God of peace. And so where Christian narrative depends upon God for love, this is the idea. These are not resources that we create, they're resources that we find in God. And so Christian narrative is not where it is not the foundation, we fall back then upon imagining that we can secure ourselves. Can you provide your own security? You know, Larry said this morning he thought maybe I was bringing a bomb into church and we, we should have a bomb squad and, you know, maybe we could get a couple guys on Sunday to... <laughs> You know, maybe we just don't let anybody wander in. We better better start patting people down, you know. And, uh, the point is we don't secure ourselves. We don't need to, to ward off. We don't need to establish our own peace. Now, I, what I'm saying is very dangerous, you understand. Because if we don't secure ourselves, that means our security is in the hands of God. And God may have a very different sense of security than we do. After all, his son died on a cross. And it may in fact be that the security that he gives us is not this side of death. Psychologically, you can do the same thing. And of course, I think, I think that's the picture. I think that it's, it's a political reality. It's a philosophical reality. But I think psychologically, this is Paul's picture, that he's in, in, a, in some way attempting to secure himself through the law. That's the problem, that's the predicament, not just of the Jew, that's every human problem. That, by the way, is the founding moment in psychoanalysis, that Freud discovers that all people then are attempting to find life in and through the superego, through the law, through some sort of sacrifice. And what this attempt is, is really the attempt to gain life out of death. The Freudian blow to philosophical ethics, I believe is just that what we call the moral law, I think this is the Christian blow to philosophical ethics. What Kant, Immanuel Kant calls, you know, the categorical imperative, it almost sounds like Jesus' great command. 
I would do only that which I would will to be done universally. I believe it's our own law. And the basic human drive is to secure ourselves. This was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's picture of the fall. He says that when man became an ethicist and he began to decide good and evil apart from reference to God, this was a sign of the fall. So the basic drive, this involves us in an ethics which depends on our strength and not God's strength. You know, think about it, just the simple Christian commands, welcome the stranger. Well, that could be, that could be very dangerous. Refuse violence, turn the other cheek, live out of control, but allow God then to take control. So that I think it's reason itself. In that sense, Christianity and Christian ethics is very unreasonable. It's very unworkable. I think that would be the accusation. This just won't work. But I don't know how workable a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago is supposed to be. In other words, the point is not pragmatics. Because in the end, this is in the hands of God. Only an ethics based on such an imperative as Kant's categorical imperative. What is that? It's free of any story. It's free of any religion. It's free of any anthropological presuppositions. Uh, the picture is of a totally free agent. And of course, that's not really what human beings are. Such an ethic is based on reason alone. It's distinguished from religion, politics, and etiquette. What I'm describing is what is taught in most Christian colleges today. That is, they're not going to ground Christian ethics in the peculiarities of the Christian story. They imagine that it's a shared understanding. But the end of this story is one that we're witnessing. That is, Christians supporting evil. It's just a necessity, right? To do evil that good may abound? No, I think that's abhorrent. As Friedrich Nietzsche said, it is indecent to be a Christian today. I believe the moral law looked at more closely is simply desire itself. It's the desire to establish ourselves. Ethics is a respect for something completely different from life. This was Kant's picture. It's just duty. This is, by the way, I don't know if you've read, read Hannah Arendt's picture of Adolf Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem. She thought that going to see Eichmann, Eichmann is the man who figured the timetables of the trains. He really designed the death camps and kept the Jews going to the death camps. And so they actually took him to Israel and they put him on trial. And the New Yorker hires Hannah Arendt to go and report on the trial. She thought that when she got there, she would encounter some diabolical, you know, monster. And she was very disappointed because Eichmann was not an interesting, he, he was just a boring bureaucrat. And he said, I was just obeying orders. And he quotes the Kantian categorical imperative. He said, what would we, you know, do you want me to break the law? What would it be like if we all broke the law? I think that Hannah Arendt noted, she noted two things. She came up with two words that describe it, and the two words don't fit together. She referred to the banality of evil. That is, when she encountered Eichmann, here was a man who had just an incapacity of thought. He couldn't, he couldn't extrapolate. He knew how to run trains. 
He knew how to figure timetables. He knew how to be a good German. He knew how to be a good German bureaucrat. The man was stupid. But stupid people, that seems to coincide with the other term that she came up with, and that is radical evil. That here was one of the most radical evil human beings she had encountered, and there was no personality there. Uh, let me give you a terrible illustration of the categorical imperative. I don't know if you know who the Marquis de Sade is. The Marquis de Sade is where we get sadism. He spent most of his life in prison. And he used the Kantian categorical imperative for his own ethics. And of course, in his ethics, the thing that we should pursue is pleasure. All people should have the ultimate pleasure. He has one of his novelistic characters propose as his maxim to murder anyone who gets in his way. With regard to the crime of destroying one's fellow, be persuaded it is purely hallucinatory. Man has not been accorded the power to destroy. He has at best the capacity to alter forms. What difference does it make to her creative hand if this mass of flesh today is reproduced tomorrow in the guise of a handful of centipedes? This is the law of universal metamorphosis and murder is simply part of this universal principle. The point being, you can begin with pure reason and get radical evil. You can begin with pure reason and the ethic that will result is just however people would shape it. Eichmann, the mass murderer, resembles, you know, I think any serial killer. They've relinquished the powers of thought. He was very good at running timetables, but he had become a cog in the machine of the bureaucratic German state. And the danger is that if our only desire is to be a good citizen, that we too then will become a cog in a machine that is ultimately its purposes are evil. And so to be a good citizen is not enough. This was Hitler's architect. He said, all I ever wanted to do was to be an architect. That's not enough. It will involve you not in love, but in violence and death. I presume that every culture is a culture of death. Maybe I'm just a dark person. But isn't that what the Bible is telling us? That we're saved out of this world's cultures because they will rob life from us. If we devote ourselves to these things, that life will be displaced with death. And love will be displaced with hate. And we're made to pursue a value that will miss life and will miss the love of life that's immediately surrounding us. I think the torture and humiliation of Christ in crucifixion carried out by Rome vicariously enjoyed by the children of Rome. The Jews, they, you know, this is the great irony at the trial of Jesus. Listen to the chant of the Jews. We have no king but Caesar. These are Jews shouting this. A complete loyalty to the God King Caesar. It was blasphemy by the standards of their own religion. And, you know, their whole religion is pitted against this sort of blind idolatrous allegiance. And so the death of Christ gains for his killers the powers of Rome, the powers of Israel, the socio-religious powers, 
a kind of godlike feeling, you know, of power, that they're going to save the nation. Isn't this exalting in power? I think it's just the, it's the power of everyone that would secure themselves. The killings carried by account by Caesar, Mao, Stalin, Hitler, or any warmongering demigod are not a realm apart from the common murderer. The point is, I'm not saying to just reduce all people to the same moral level, but rather to suggest that all people are infected in varying intensities with the same universal problem that Christ came to cure. It is precisely the implication, you know, this is the song we sing, uh, at the foot of the cross, the old rugged cross. Because the point of that hymn is that we do not identify with those who put Christ on the cross, but we identify with the one who is on the cross. The murderous forces which put Christ on the cross, I believe, affects us all. And so the good news is that Christ's death is not simply another murder, but along with his life and resurrection is an uncovering of the symptom that we are all infected with and the symptom that killed him. The symptom which lies behind every act of violence, every murder, every life given over to a culture of death. Whether you're a potentate, a serial killer, or even an apostle, or a low-level sinner, Paul says all have fallen short of the glory of God and in the same way. Maybe to different degrees, but in the same systemic way that the New Testament identifies. So his is not an overcoming, putting chaos at bay, or achieving peace through violence, through resistance. But it's an, an exposure of the workings of power, portrayed in the ultimate violence wrought against him. Paul relates the understanding as it's applied to him that I no longer live, but it's Christ Jesus that lives within me. I have been crucified. And so the deception of sin is always one, I believe, that in which we would secure ourselves. And remembering Christ as we do in the Lord's Supper is to say that overcoming the resistance of sin, overcoming the violence, the death, and the cultures of death is to identify with the one who has died. The remembering and repetition of Christ that we're working through, we're walking as he walked, it breaks through then. The story, the narrative, the neurosis, the sickness, portrayed, I think, by every human culture, every human personality, that Christ addresses the human sickness in his death and in his resurrection. And I think that's why in Corinthians then, the ethic is tied to an entirely new culture, an entirely new politic, an entirely new way of doing identity, of being a peculiar people. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.